This week, Brother Kilman and Sister Troxel debate issues of holiness. So, Brother Kilman and Sister Troxel are going to be kind of hashing through some of the better known thoughts when you think of holiness. And so I'm really excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, I'm really grateful for you guys being plugged in in class. We do have a small group here. It doesn't bother me at all, but I realize how it could bother some people. Um, in fact, I know if you were going to ask any one of us teachers here in this room to teach tonight, we would get up here and we would yell, spit, and slobber just the same as if we had a full class. So it wouldn't bother us at all. It's just about being together, the fellowship, and being in the presence of God, and just allowing God to do whatever it is He wants us to do. Amen? So I'm looking forward to that. So tonight we're going to um, give seven and a half minutes to each one of our speakers to give their whatever it is they want to bring. Then the other speaker will rotate seven and a half, and they'll each get two seven and a half minute cycles. And then we'll have time to open it up for Q&A. Alright? So if you get a good question, keep it in your head because I want to hit them with it when it's all said and done. So who is first tonight? Sister Troxel? Okay. I did not get you a mic. Evan, got you a mic. Great. Okay. Uh, Sister Troxel and I were talking a little bit and probably needed to uh, set the tone a little bit. Uh, we are uh, representing a view that would be uh, both Pentecostal and uh, even, uh, we would say, apostolic. So this is kind of an in-house uh, debate on whether or not uh, certain aspects of the separation of the sexes apply. So this is kind of looking like into a family discussion. So we're going to assume we all believe that we both believe the Bible. We both believe in holiness. What we're arguing about is what is the biblical prescription uh, for following what God loves. And we both want to, assuming that we're both want to please God and be consistent with Scripture, so that's the debate. All right, so first we're going to start on the issue of um, hair. So it's, it's really nothing more than an old cultural argument. You, you believe in women preachers. And 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35 says, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. Shame here in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11 is the same. Well, why don't you dismiss women preachers? If it was just cultural, it's specific to the issue at Corinth. So what was this cultural issue? Veiling women was the cultural norm in Corinth, and pagan worshipers rejected this practice out of rebellion against the establishment. Admonishing women to wear veils and men not to, so they'd not be identified with the rebellious cross-dressing practices of pagans. If Paul said that uncut hair replaces a veil, he would be giving license to rebel against the cultural norm in Corinth. This is unimaginable. Not one single early church writer ever wrote that 1 Corinthians 11 taught strictly uncut hair. See, Paul is only talking about a cloth. What does uncovered mean? Uncovered there is used only twice in the New Testament. It means not covered or 
unveiled. It's derived from the Greek words, meaning down from, throughout, according to, toward, and along. And another Greek word, which means to hide or veil. Paul is referring to the practice of veiling among women in the first century Greco-Roman. Uncut hair has been rejected by most Bible scholars. If uncovered refers to uncut hair, then why does Paul state this is only forbidden while praying or prophesying and not the rest of the time? If it is hair, then how long is really long? Does shorn mean uncut or cut at all? The word shorn used in 1 Corinthians 11 is the Greek word kiro, which means to shear, like a sheep, to get out or let be shorn, of shearing or cutting short the hair of the head. Kiro is used in two other places in the New Testament, translated shearer. In Acts 8.32 that reads, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so open he not his mouth. Kiro is here used of shearing sheep, which is more than trimming hair. No one would logically suggest a sheep is shorn if only one lock of its hair has been cut from the sheep. Yet that is what you must maintain. Shorn means, if it means cut as all, is in fact shorn. Another place we see this word is in Acts 18.18. 18. And Paul, after this tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sinchera, for he had a vow. Paul took a Nazarite vow. Those who took the Nazarite vow, both men and women, were required to cut off all of their hair at its completion. We can see that in Numbers 6, 18. Not just to simply trim it. Neither the definition of shorn nor the context in which it is used in the Bible ever refers to merely trimming one's hair through cutting, but it always implies a near-complete removal of hair. To, remain, to maintain the uncut hair position, you must abandon the original definition of shorn. Shorn does not mean to cut it at all, but means to cut shortly or nearly shaved, which is the correct definition. For a man to have hair down to his waist but trims it an inch, he's uncovered. If a woman with long hair trims an inch and is uncovered, then if a man has long hair and trims an inch, is he okay? I'll leave that to you. Okay. Well, good. We're, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talking about uh, what Paul means. Uh, by a woman's uh, covering. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11 does address uh, cut hair on women and uncut hair uh, on men, right? And uh, to maintain that uh, it's just an old cultural argument runs into several problems. First of all, culture is never used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, and I do not dismiss women preachers. I understand that there's a, a discrepancy with some people who say that Paul's uh, command in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that it's a shame for her to speak, was just a cultural issue. That's why we can embrace women preachers today. Well, that's not what Paul's dealing with at all. He's saying that a woman that doesn't obey the law of God, uh, 
in obedience to the separation of sexes is unfit. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is addressing. Or else he just forgot what he wrote three chapters earlier, which was when you stand to pray and prophesy in public, a woman must be right in terms of her covering. So the question is not whether or not it's uh, cultural, because culture is never men mentioned uh, in the text itself. Further than that, there uh, lots of uh, incredible scholars to today are acknowledging that this is about the creative order of the world, not just a cultural distinctive. Uh, for instance, a reputable uh, scholar and theologian and philosopher, R.C. Sproul, who's not an apostolic, says that the thing uh, that is most astonishing here, speaking of 1 Corinthians 11, is that he, speaking of Paul, appeals to creation, not to Corinth. If anything transcends local custom, it is those things that are rooted in the order of creation. That's why uh, Sproul, says, Sproul says, I'm very frightened to be loose with this passage. So even someone like R.C. Sproul, a great Reformed uh, theologian, is uh, saying you have to take this seriously because Paul says it's about the creative order. Uh, further than that, uh, Johannan, the founder of the uh, gospel, uh, uh, founder of the uh, organization Gospel for Asia, says Paul's admonition for women to wear a head covering because of the angels removes any doubt that this teaching is. Uh, uh, universal and timeless. He says it has to be, because not only is it tied to uh, creation, it's also tied to angels. So it's not just addressing Corinth, even though it speaks to Corinth. It's about God's creative order and distinction in the sexes that applies in all times and places. Right? And you know that because of, uh, of what Paul is saying there. Uh, and uh, you, you made the statement, and other people have as well, that not one single early church uh, writer following the apostles ever wrote that 1 Corinthians uh, 11 taught uh, strictly that you shouldn't, uh, a woman should have uncut hair. But that's fascinating. If you look at uh, Salzburg in uh, AD 105, the early church, uh, uh, or sorry, Salzburg uh, shows this in his page 105, the early church passed a law in 390 AD uh, when uh, the, we became kind of a Christian empire, the emperor decreed this statement. He said, women who shall have shorn hair contrary to divine and human law should be barred from the doors of a church. Now, I don't agree with that. But it is interesting uh, that, you know, the statement that not er any early church writer uh, held that position is directly refuted by the law made by this early uh, uh, Christian emperor. All right, now, uh, the reason he did that is because one particular uh, person uh, who was a leader there was taking a rebellious step by asking for her hair to be cut. You can see that in the Encyclopedia of Women in the Ancient World. So there actually uh, is many references that uh, this was a cultural issue that they had to uh, hammer out. And remember, uh, culture and cloth, not, not even cloth is used in this uh, passage. Paul is a brilliant communicator. And he had three other Greek words that he could have used for veil if he meant simply a head covering. Uh, but he didn't use that because uh, he lets the, uh, the scripture itself in, in the next few verses define what he means by covering. So we have to not, you, because you and I both love the Bible, we have to let the Bible interpret what the covering is. And we can see that the word for uh, cloth or veil or whatever you would want to translate it as uh, isn't used till verse 15, where Paul says the parabolon covering uh, is there, and he says it's her hair that's giving her for a covering. So he's clear, Paul says in verse 15, that her hair is her covering. And you have to remember that this can't work in terms of calling it a veil, because um, if 
if a woman comes in should be covered and a man shouldn't be covered, that runs into horrible problems. Why? Because Jewish men wore uh, prayer shawls all the time. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can see men in prayer shawls as they begin to pray. And so Paul would never have dreamed as a a good uh, Jewish man trying to win his Jewish uh, brethren uh, going into the temple to worship without wearing uh, a veil. That would have been uh, totally absurd. So uh, when you say it's uh, it's meant not covered uh, or unveiled, and it comes down, it does come down from... uh, uh, Katakalupto, which which means to hide or to veil, um, that interpretation that it's a a veil is a modern invention. Actually, uh, that's why it's not used in any translation, because it, all you have to do is look at any major translation today, and they will say the same thing. It's tied to the Greek word katakalupto, uh, which literally means kata down kalupto, that which flows. So it's literally rendered that which flows downward. And if you interrupt the flow. It becomes a different Greek word. So to interrupt it an inch or, or anything would be uh, what Paul is talking about. That's why not one major translation today uh, translates it other than shorn or cut. And I could list many examples, but you can check me out on that and see if I'm right. Uh, if there was even one English translation or, or another translation to another language that used the interpretation that you're suggesting to cut it off close, like to shear a sheep, uh, it would, I would give you a little bit of wiggle room, but it still wouldn't match the Greek. A katakalupto is that which flows downward, and to interrupt the flow uh, is to change the word. Uh, for instance, look at the Jewish Encyclopedia on Women's Hair. On page 158, it says this, Among women, long hair is extolled as a mark of beauty. It goes on to say a woman's hair was never cut, except as a sign of deep mourning or of degradation, and they, they did that to enemies sometimes. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you look in the book of Deuteronomy, the law forbids the shaving of the head. So this would have been uh, absolutely unimaginable uh, to Paul and to uh, biblical people of that time. So uh, this is a biblical definition, not just the cultural norm at Corinth about being uncovered. Uh, so uh, when you say un- the notion that this means uncut hair is rejected by most uh, biblical scholars, well, first of all, uh, who cares what scholars say? Uh, you believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. The question is, what does the Word of God say, and what is His desire? And you want to please God, and I want to please God. So, uh, in fact, what does the Word of God say? So that's the standard, not the de- definition of men. But even if you look at uh, what I'm going to call a very liberal translation, the New, Inter- New International Version, because it's not it's not even a word for word translation. It's a um, a thought-for-thought translation. If you look at the footnote on this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, it says it's talking about, uh, speaking of the man in this particular point, a man with long hair. Now, why would I quote the NIV? Well, because I'm saying even some of the most liberal translations today uh, are in agreement with that. Uh, Further than that, when you look at Kittle's uh, uh, definition, uh, it proves it can't be a veil. Volume 3, pages uh, 561 through 563, discusses it in detail. I'll summarize uh, with this statement. Uh, He says, it is quite wrong that Greek women were under compulsion to wear a veil in public. Veiling was not a general uh, general custom. It was Jewish, and and that was for men. All right, so uh, when we look at it, all the archaeological evidence shows that at the time Paul is writing this epistle, uh, the, the Greek women did not wear veils. 
That was a later development under Catholicism. So uh, the point is, all the archaeological evidence, and even Kittle, some of these, uh, uh, that's why you, know, you have to be careful which sources you read. Because the archaeological evidence and, and good uh, Bible dictionaries uh, will, will help you understand the context of the time. Now, some people would say, I know I have good apostolic friends that say we should wear a covering. And I understand why they would say that. Really, most of that, especially within our Hispanic traditions and uh, some other cultures, have picked that up and carried it over directly from uh, Catholicism. And, and the Catholics did require that. But that's not uh, a biblical requirement because Paul says her hair is the covering. Okay, so when you uh, say, or when others say as well, why did Paul state this is only forbidden uh, while praying or prophesying? Well, that's an arbitrary, saying only. Uh, and that was inserted, okay? Uh, he's saying that the only women in all places in all times, because it's tied to the created border, that can stand behind the pulpit are women that are obeying this practice. So it's not only when they're praying and prophesying. He's saying the ones that are qualified to stand up in public worship are the ones that are obeying the biblical command. All right? Uh, further than that, since Paul says it's a shame uh, and that a woman should be covered, and we know that katakalupto means that which flows downward, it means if it's interrupted at all, she becomes uncovered and therefore disqualified uh, to lead. All right? So uh, when we say, okay, well, or like others have said, it's meant to cut short or to shear it close uh, like uh, sheep. I would again challenge you, find me one translation that agrees with that. Or should, uh, even if there's, if you're saying that uh, that's the logical translation, then why, how can we deny over 400 and some translations today into English that don't agree with you? And my question would be, for that argument, do you know more than all the Greek scholars in history? Well, I think that would be a tad pretentious. So, <laughs> when you look at the context, and it's true, and you're looking at the passages with Paul, it's one of the three po possibilities that's translated from that Greek word. But context defines usage. If I say sail, you don't know if I mean get on a ship, or it's 50% off. And it's up to the context to define usage. And the context is rightly translated cut, or Paul would have been needlessly redundant. Further, it has to be translated that way when it's coupled with katakaluptos, which literally means that which flows downward. Again, if it inter it's interrupted, it becomes a different Greek word. So when my wife was with a, a wonderful couple, and they said kind of derisively, how long is long? And she, my wife said, it's katakalupto, that which flows downward. If you interrupt the flow downward, it's a different Greek word. And so how long is long? Well, Paul is clear. It's uncut. Now, the question of whether or not Paul is taking a vow, uh, I think you're assuming too much there in the context. Uh, the other two men clearly did take a vow, and that's why they paid a temple tax. But why in the world didn't Paul pay one if he was going to be a good Jew? Uh, he didn't pay the temple tax. The vow that it's referred to, it's the same Greek word translated in James 5.15 where it says the prayer of faith. So it's just talking about uh, his faith, right? And uh, be, he was uh, cutting his hair because he was going to pray. And you have to remember he just had been under arrest. And so before going to church, Paul practiced and believed what he preached. If he says it's a shame to have, for a man to long, have long hair, when he got out of jail where he couldn't do that, the first thing he did was stop by the barber. Make sure he goes into prayer the right way. Right? So uh, uh, when you look at that context, further, uh, let me throw a little more language at you. The words there, kai, uh, kaipasto, is from the Greek word kairo. 
Now, when you look at what Paul says, um, the word he has there is kairaminos, uh, which means to cut one's hair, not to shave it. And you can see that. That's not my definition. That's Art uh, Gingrich and Bauer on page 428. So they agree that Paul didn't shave uh, as in uh, accomplishing a Nazarite vow. Uh, uh, further than that, it simply means from the aorist middle to cut one's hair. That's the definition. Now, I know that this is a lot of technical language, but when Paul says, let her be shorn, if a woman comes in and she has her hair shorn or shaven, he says, let her be shorn. The important thing to understand there is it's tied to sensitive action. Now, what do I mean by sensitive action? He says, whatever is causing her to be uncovered, she needs to cease the action. Okay, so that means it's correctly understood, uh, literally translated as, the fact is, if a woman is not so covered with uncut hair, indeed, she must stop cutting it. That's a, a very good translation. And again, even the NIV footnote sta uh, states, let her be for now with short hair. Right? And that's a, a, gr a great admission even by the NIV. So the issue is uncut hair for women and cut hair for men. Um, how much more of this should I, I do? Uh, well, uh, let me just say this. It can't, to say that this is not about uncut hair and that it's about veils can't be the case because a Jewish man and priest, uh, according to Leviticus and Ezekiel, and, and you can go into Exodus and other passages where men are required to wear uh, veils. And so if God required them to wear veils, how could he call it a shame in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Uh, but if you want to ignore all the translations and Greek experts for this kind of new view of translating it, shorn like a sheep, very close. And if you're uh, comfortable ignoring the exact phrases, katakalupto, that which flows downward in Cairo, uh, or uh, Kiro to trim, and ignore its specific linking with other words, and I could throw out some more there, uh, and ignore the immediate context that it's tied to creation, not just a cultural issue. You can get to where you're at with kind of this new translation. The problem is, is experts in language and history and archaeology have shown that this is not just a cultural issue and that the word itself means to interrupt the flow downward. And when you say, well, a man that interrupts the flow an inch is, you know, then he's covered. No, no, no. It's two comparisons, shorn and shaven. So man should be somewhere between shorn and shaven. And Paul makes that uh, double comparison on purpose. And that's why uh, we say that a woman shouldn't interrupt the flow downward. Because if she wants to honor God, the question is, um, how do I understand this passage? And if it's linked to something like the creative order, and God commands it, uh, it could have been reversed possibly. Men could have had the uncut hair. And women have the cut hair. The question is, if this is what God wants, and the language is clear, why should we resist it? Well, thank you for that. Now we're going to um, transition into the separation of sexes in, in dress. So usually um, there are three things claimed um, by people who insist that women should wear um, skirts or dresses. They first claim Deuteronomy 22.5 teaches that women should not wear that which pertains unto, unto a man. The, the second is pants pertain to a man because they were not only exclusively invented for men, but they also have historically been worn only by men. And the third is, since there is so little distinction between men and women's pants, they are essentially unisex and therefore do not provide adequate separation. So what's in view? 
Keli is a, translated as weapon, the armor or instrument in the Old Testament. So a man in Deuteronomy 22.5 is gibber, meaning man, a strong man, a, a warrior, emphasizing his strength or the ability to fight. It's not the only word for man, though. Lish means man or, or male in contrast to a woman or female. Deuteronomy 22.5 is not about a man in general, but a warrior or a soldier. A better translation would say, the woman shall not put on the weapons or armor of a warrior. Neither shall a warrior put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. And experts agree. Adam Clark, as the word giver here is used, which properly signifies a strong man or man of war, it is very pr probable that armor is here intended, especially as we know that in the worship of Venus, among the Canaanites bore a striking resemblance. The, woman, the women were accustomed to appear in armor before her. This does mean war garment or attire which is girding the loins. Again, that's, sorry, John Gill and his, another, another expert agrees. John Gill in his expo, exposition in the entire Bible sees a similar meaning in 22.5. And the word keely also signifies armor. And it forbids women putting on a military habit and going with men to war, as was usual with Eastern women. Another illustrates it by putting a helmet on her head and clothing herself with a coat of mail. In like manner, Josephus explains it, take heed, especially in war, that a woman, that a woman does not make use of a habit of man, or a man that of a woman. Another suggested, uh, Rabbi John J. Tilson of the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism writes in an excerpt that, from an article entitled Cross-Dressing in Deuteronomy 22.5. It's another attempt to identify the quintessential men's items. Rabbi Tilson further states, the same understanding is followed by Midrath, Midrash Milshlai, which contends that the biblical character Jael in the book of Judges kills General Sisera with a tent pen instead of a sword in order to comply with this law that women shouldn't pick up a man's, a warrior's items. It would have been unladylike for her to use a sword. Worse, a violation of the law because a sword was a man's tool. In Deuteronomy 22, Deuteronomy 22.5 is in the context of a bunch of ceremonial laws. It's most likely a ceremonial law rather than moral law, which would mean that it would have little, if any, implications for Christians today. Why would God bury this in the middle of all of these ceremonial laws if it was something he really wanted us to understand? You, you don't consistently apply this principle you advocate. Many articles of clothing have histories of originating with certain sex. T-shirts, for instance, were invented for men and originally worn exclusively by men. They came to America during World War I when American soldiers noticed that the European soldiers were wearing them. By World War II, the t-shirt became standard issue for American military. Not only were t-shirts originally invented for men, but they were invented specifically for the military. Do you preach against t-shirts on women? If clothing history is the sole determining factor of what constitutes clothing that pertains to a man, then t-shirts must also be forbidden to maintain this consistency. 
and you haven't considered clothing norms in the Bible. If we look at Genesis 3.21, it records God made coats of skin for them to wear. This word in the Greek and the Hebrew means a long shirt-like garment. God chose the exact same word to describe clothing made for both Adam and Eve. God chose the same word describing the clothing made for both Adam and Eve. So where is the distinction here? If God chose to make so little distinction, then who are we to require a greater distinction between the sexes? Easton's Bible Dictionary states, the robes of men and women were not very much different in form from each other. There's no evidence that radical distinctions in dress existed in, bi in biblical times. The, the, their only difference in men and women's clothing in scripture were merely stylistic and not functional differences. Differences between men and women's pants today are as great as the differences between men and women's garments in the Bible. Some say if it is acceptable for women to wear pants, then it should be acceptable for a man to wear a dress or a skirt. No, because it's cultural norms. A man wearing a skirt in modern American society would be deemed so as counterculture to the people. We as Christians are trying to be examples to, namely, unbelievers. Kilts, the Bidown tribes, and others wear these, and they're okay because it's appropriate to their culture. However, Women wearing pants is hardly counterculture. While there was once a time in our society when a woman in pants would have been viewed negatively by society, it's not the case today. Is it because society's morals have declined and it no longer sees women in pants as the, as the sin that it is? Of course not. It's merely a change in fashion over the years. There's no distinction in biblical dress for men and women beyond styles. A thorough study of clothing norms in Scripture reveals there was no distinction between men and women's clothing in the Bible beyond stylistic differences such as trim, color, and size. God himself, again, made clothing for Adam and Eve that was so similar that it describes it in one word, the specific garment he made for each of them. This same word describes the clothing worn by godly men and women throughout the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. If God makes no such clothing demands on his people, then who are we to make them? Do we know better than God? In summary, even your experts agree. One apostolic scholar with a PhD said, we cannot know what Deuteronomy 22.5 says, means. And even the Apostolic Study Bible leaves this alone with a minimal comment. Deuteronomy 22.5, gender distinction is in view in this verse. But there's no clear explanation. Gender distinction is in view in this verse. And that's all your study Bible gives. Thank you. Okay. Well, uh, let's, uh, uh, let's see if I can respond kind of uh, point uh, by point to uh, your concerns. All right, so when we look at Deuteronomy 22.5, uh, you said that there are three things that are usually claimed. That's not my argument. That's a straw man, and I know it's easy to knock a straw man down, but that's not my argument. I believe the verse po first point is right. Deuteronomy 22.5 says that a woman should not wear that which pertains unto a man. What's funny is the Hebrew there is parallelism. 
So it's not only that uh, a woman should not wear that which pertains to a man, but a man should not wear that which pertains to a, a woman. So whatever you say about pertains to in terms of translation, uh, the attire of a strong man or whatever you want to make that out as armor, how would that apply in the parallelism to the attire worn by women? Especially if you're maintaining that the robes are very, very similar. Okay, so how would how would that make any uh, sense at all in terms of consistency? Uh, when you talk about uh, it not being a normal man, that is absolutely true. That is a great point, and that's not as obvious in the English, but it's very very clear in the Greek. It does mean a war garment or an attire that a man would go to work in, which is the practice in the Old Testament mentioned numerous times, which um, I have failed to hear you mention yet. The girding of the loins. Uh, so a man would take the back of his garment, tuck it into the front of his, uh, his what we would call a girdle or a long uh, round belt uh, that would extend from the hips down to the waist, and he would make a breeches-like effect. Now that would be totally inappropriate for women because of uh, the distinction in sexes, which is tied to uh, what Song of Solomon in Proverbs says is that men are visually stimulated and that there are certain types of garment uh, garments that tend to cup and, and thus would be um, uh, more visual for men to see. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't garments that are like a skirt or a dress that could not be immodest. But the best garment for a woman to wear would be a loose uh, flowing garment. Uh, when you said that it's a better translation, that a woman should not put on the weapons or armors of a warrior, then again, I'm going to point out, uh, why has no Bible translation in the history of the world? I translated that from the Hebrew. Now, all due respect to Adam Clark, and you quoted uh, John Gill uh, and a couple of rabbis, I, I understand what they're saying. But why has no Hebrew scholar at all translated the Hebrew that way? These men are interpreting it, not translating it. And so if it's that clear in the Hebrew, why in the world haven't they uh, made that uh, uh, point? As a matter of fact, it shows that it's about men's attire because, because it's talking about women's attire as well. And so when you talk about a strong man's attire, uh, it's these girded loins uh, that a, a man at work or a warrior would uh, wear. Um, and further, when we talk about Deuteronomy 22.5, I understand that it's like, you know, don't see the kid in its mother's milk. And by that, it means a boiling uh, a baby goat in its, uh, the baby goat's mother's milk. So it's not like God's against chowder. It's, it's, uh, but that practice, when you look at, uh, and I'm going to reference someone, uh, that, again, that's not apostolic, Dr. Constable shows that all of these practices were tied to pagan Canaanite uh, practices and were wrong at all times. Anything pagan that was supposed to excite the gods, like we wouldn't play with a Ouija board today or something like that. That's always wrong in every culture. But further than that, 22.5 goes further saying it's an abomination unto the Lord. Now, there was abominations unto Israel, which would be a part of the ceremonial law. But abomination unto the Lord ties it to the moral code, which is absolutely above and beyond just... So he's saying, no pagan practices. And by the way, this pagan practice is double wrong because it's also a, an abomination called transgenderism. And God doesn't embrace that. Uh, so... Um, uh, and the the argument about T-shirts, that's a great argument. Uh, the same uh, could be said about like ball caps or something like that. They're unisex. I have not argued, like I said, on any historical use at all. Instead, I'm arguing on what the Bible says is attire for a man. So this is not tied historically because men have worn 
pants, like men have traditionally worn t-shirts. This is about a function of dress that God has talked about from uh, all the way back uh, in the beginning, and I'll show you uh, throughout the Old and New Testament. Right? So the most important thing about their, uh, the differences of attire between men and women in the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, was not in what they wore. They all wore robes like the Bedouins and uh, they were loose flowing garments. But the biggest difference, even though there was stylistic and cut and trims like you've acknowledged, <clears throat> the biggest difference was how they wore it. So uh, there were male and female ways of utilizing their clothing. So, uh, for instance, in biblical times, when you look at Exodus 28 and Exodus 39, Leviticus 6, Leviticus 16, Ezekiel chapter 44, uh, the scripture talks about breaches under the robes of, uh, of the uh, priests so that when they're up high on like the brazen altar or they're offering sacrifice, uh, that their nakedness wouldn't be exposed. But these are all in reference to men, and women were never allowed to wear them. As a matter of fact, Hebrew lexicons show that breeches means uh, trousers that extend below the knee. And that's where we uh, get our uh, later English word, breeches. Um, and so when my mama used to say to me, son, don't make me dust your breeches, she would never say that to my sister. As a matter of fact, in early American history, and by the way, the historical component is important, uh, it was illegal to walk through the streets of Chicago at one time in American history uh, for a woman in a pair of pants because she would have been arrested for indecent exposure because pants tend to cup and uh, are more visually um, revealing than, say, something like what the Bible says a woman should wear, which is a loose-flowing garment. Uh, so uh, women in the Bible times did not wear, if you forgive the term, crotched garments uh, out in, in public because of this uh, particular issue. And that's why pants were worn for the first 5,900 years of human history by men alone. Um, so uh, when the Bible, the second thing is the Bible says not only these britches or pants-like garments were for men, but the, that women are not commanded to gird up their loins. As a matter of fact, the Bible's explicit uh, that this was something to make a trouser-like effect that was distinctively masculine. That's why when the Bible, God appears to Job, and Job's saying, if I could just meet with God, I'd take him to task. He, he says, gird up now thy loins like a man, because it was uh, for men. And what God is saying is, let's fight. You want to fight with me? You say you want to debate me? Let's debate. Let's fight. Let's, let's strike a fist, as Job would say. And, and that, that means a, a strong man, which you've acknowledged is right. So the point is that this distinction of dress is not just about historical usage, but the biblical definitions of what a woman and a man should wear. Uh, and you said you haven't considered the clothing norms of the Bible. I haven't? Well, uh, lots of people that write on this issue never mention girded loins. Uh, they, uh, they never mention breaches one time in the old, that the Old Testament is clear on. Further than that, I would go, since, and, and since I have pointed out that this is what the Bible is using, um, let me ask you another question. If it's so ambiguous, does Deuteronomy 22.5 mean nothing? If the robes were so similar, it didn't matter. And if uh, a dress today is so similar, it doesn't matter. Perhaps God wasted space and spent all that time calling it an abomination and lifting it up like it was a big deal uh, in Deuteronomy 22.5. And I, I think here's where you would have to acknowledge that the biblical notion of girding the loins like a man is missing from the conversation. So um, what, what else uh, should I say on this subject? Um, let me just say, uh, when you talk about 
uh, women's pants today. They, they do have men's skirts today. Would you be okay with your uh, husband wearing one? Or your son? <laughs> should, should the Lord uh, uh, bless you with a, a son? Would, would you be okay with him wearing uh, a, men's, uh, a man's dress? Well, that's, uh, that's an important issue. It's a side issue. We could talk about that further. How much time do I have left? One minute. No woman is ever told to gird her loins in the Bible um, in, in, in a physical way. Paul affirms this by saying she should wear modest apparel or katastola in the Greek, which is a loose flowing garment, 1 Timothy 2.9. Avine's expository dictionary shows that it's, it simply means to send or let down, to lower, uh, primarily a garment let down, hence dress, attire in general, a stole, a loose outer garment worn by kings and persons of ranks. So here he's saying a woman should wear a loose flowing garment. Uh, from Genesis, even you said the word that aprons means a, a loose uh, flowing garment. And that's exactly why Peter says, for after this manner, First Peter 3, 5, in old time, holy women of old who trusted in God adorned themselves. So he says a blanket endorsement of from Genesis, a loose flowing garment, uh, all the way through to Paul and Peter in the New Testament, a loose flowing garment on, on women uh, because men are visually stimulated. And that, that would be inappropriate for a woman to wear. So from the beginning of the Old Testament into the New Testament, it's the same definition. Uh, so the fact that you haven't mentioned girding the loins or breeches shows that either you were uninformed or you were ignoring the Old Testament uh, practices regarding this definition. Either way, it means that you're disqualified for defining Deuteronomy 22.5. Um, and let me just comment in, in closing. Uh, you said one apostolic scholar uh, with a PhD said we can't know what it means. Well, just because one particular scholar who's apostolic has believed what they taught him at a seminary doesn't make him right. The Bible says, let every man be a liar and let God be true. Uh, further than that, even though the Apostolic Study Bible is not as explicit as maybe we would like it to be, there are other clear documents in our organization, uh, articles, teaching series that represent our view uh, clearly, especially even the position paper that was uh, passed on this past general conference on this particular issue. But more importantly, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, women are told, commanded, to wear modest apparel, loose flowing garments, which uh, doesn't fit uh, the definition of, uh, that, that you're asserting. Let me quote another uh, Bible. This is the last thing I'll say. Let me quote another study Bible. Uh, this is not an apostolic study Bible. This is the King James Version study Bible produced by Liberty University. Look what they say at Deuteronomy 22.5. This is the 11th subsection, the law of transvestism. This passage clearly teaches the importance of maintaining a proper distinction between the sexes, the lack thereof, which is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. This warning does not refer merely to clothing styles. Notice what they say, not merely. It does refer to clothing styles, but not merely clothing styles. It goes uh, further than that. Uh, and it goes on to say, the prohibition is against transvestism, which was often associated with homosexuality and the fertility rights. So yes, okay, this is a Baptist, Southern Baptist text. And even they would say that this has to do with uh, dress and maintaining the distinction in sexes. So uh, however you want to look at it, uh, understanding breaches and girded loins and the consistency from the beginning of the Bible in the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament is consistent that God does not want us to embrace transvestism. And the distinction of hair 
and the distinction of dress are two ways that God puts a bumper around issues like homosexuality and transvestism that's just running rampant in our culture today. So just because a culture says it's okay now for women to do certain things, what about a nudist beach? I mean, the Bible says evil seducers wax worse and worse. And if we constantly change to match cultural norms, we're going to be way far away from what the Old and New Testament says is modest apparel and separation of the sexes. And that's why we're dealing with so much homosexual issues and bisexual issues and transgendered issues today in our culture. Because we've torn down the first fence, which is the separation of the sexes in dress and hair. And by doing that, we've opened ourselves up to all of these other things to come in. When we lose the law of God and, determine, and the distinctions, then we open ourselves up to the chaos that comes with it. Right. Well, that was a very good job, guys. Um, that's, there's so much on this topic, and I appreciate them choosing a few of the hot-button conversations to deal with because could, they could not exhaust this topic. Uh, it would just take forever. and. I mean, we'd love to do it. We just have to stay here for a few months and nobody gets bathroom breaks the entire time and we would make it. So here's a chance for you to ask a question. Um, if you have a question for Brother Kilman on the topic at all, here's your chance. Yes. And I understand why you would say that. There's a, uh, like, you, the argument could be made that maybe that was a switch in custom. Um, but the fact that God commands men to wear them in certain practices, uh, and he looks at uh, Eve and says, she is, um, she's okay, everything is good. In the Hebrew, uh, whole tale, very good. And she was just uh, born without a cover. Uh, and the fact that Paul says their hair is given for a covering, uh, I'd have to say, boy, I just can't, there's no way to make that veil. Uh, so it's, it's about hair, um, and, and it's true that it's not what uh, goes into a man that defiles. Of course, he's talking about kosher eating there. Uh, but um, the manifestation of, of sin on our outward body. So uh, you would say, I was talking to a, uh, some friends at seminary once, and uh, I had Eastern Orthodox friends, uh, uh, Roman Catholic friends, Baptist friends, uh, Church of Christ friends, uh, Disciples of Christ friends, every range was there. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I said to them, well, you don't think I should get up and preach in a Speedo, right? They were like, no. I said, not only would it be poor taste, it would be inappropriate. Uh, I said, or we, you don't think that women should maybe get up in bikinis and sing in the choir, right? Well, or we could even go a step further, wear nothing. Well, of course not. So the outside does matter in terms of modesty. So at some point, you have to draw a line of where modesty is. So if we wouldn't say it would be okay for a woman to get up and sing in bikinis or, or a man preach in a Speedo, uh, then the question is, it is a modesty issue uh, that is affected by that, and it is about the heart. Uh, uh, there is a, a sense in which um, women are built for affirmation. That's why the little girl comes out, twirls with the skirt to hear her daddy say, baby, you're so beautiful, or her mother say. Uh, because, but little boys don't do that. 
uh, it's because uh, Song of Solomon is clear uh, that in the marriage, when a man is verbally affirming of his wife's beauty, she becomes uh, more comfortable and secure to be visually generous, if I could say it that way. And so within the confines of marriage, that's blessed. But what happens is for affirmation, sometimes women in our culture today uh, take the shortcut. That's why we see uh, girls wearing next to nothing, uh, because they get the affirmation that they desperately need. And that's, it's okay within the confines of marriage, but it's not okay in normal everyday things. So the question is not whether or not the outward dress matters. Jesus said, you clean the inside, because he rebuked the Pharisees. He said, you clean the inside of the cup first. I mean, your, your heart's got to be right, because you can have someone with their skirt adhesive tape to their ankle, and their spirit just be terrible, and they can still be lost. Um, if they're doing it in a legalistic, self-righteous way. But if God loves certain things, then I do whatever I, I want to do uh, in terms of practice to honor Him and show my love for Him. So uh, Jesus then goes on to say, you clean the inside and then the outside. But it does start with the inward change first. You have to have uh, that correct heart first. And with the heart that says, if this is, if this is something God loves, then I just want to please Him. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will no wise ever end. Now, as the disciples are like, whoa, what are you talking about? He's saying, now I don't have a problem with a lot of their externals. They get a lot of that right. The problem is, is their heart is far from me. And they're doing it as a badge of self-righteousness. So uh, for some lady to say, or man to say, I'm doing this and look how holy I am. That's a terrible attitude. Uh, that shows that their heart is not really towards God. It's self-righteous. Uh, but when someone says, if this is what God wants, uh, then I don't want to be close to anything that even might be an abomination. And, and so there's, uh, one of my mentors told me, there's almost a law of coming in and going out. There are lots of people that haven't been taught this that they don't know. Uh, as Early in our history, every denomination practiced this. Every one of them. But as uh, we got further and further away in terms of the culture, uh, people changed kind of the biblical paradigm. And it's okay. You just start having conversations and talk to people about, well, what do you think about this? And you, and you wrestle. And I'm okay with good, honest-hearted questions. That's okay. But there's another uh, type of person, which uh, would be, they, my mentor said, uh, going out, where they will not hear. They got their fingers in their ears. And I, I don't think that's uh, representative of most people. I just don't think they've been taught about it. Those are great questions. Does anybody else have a question? Brother Brown? <laughs> Good. There's so much weird teaching on that. She has power in her head because of the angels. Well, he, remember, he said, likewise, women. Um, you know, so he, whatever women have by their hair, you have by your hair. Correct, too. So it's not like, I mean, it was, you, I'll, I'll do respect, ladies, you don't have angels in your hair. <laughs> and there's all sorts of weird, there's been weird doctrines like letting the hair down and shaking your hair over people. That's actually from witchcraft. Um, and that's a practice uh, that they picked up from paganism, unfortunately. And there was a good man, I don't think he meant anything by it. He said, if a witch knows the power of uncut hair, how much more should an apostolic lady? And I, I don't think he was making a doctrinal point. People took that to extremes. Uh, he didn't mean anything by it, I, I don't think. I think he was just preaching. <laughs> Which is, 
I don't know that I would have done I know I wouldn't have done that, actually. Uh, but all Paul means is, is it's alignment. When I obey God, I'm under authority. And authority always comes down from God. But when I sidestep, as a man, if I sidestep and I go outside the flow of God's direction for my life, and I try to have authority on my own, I'm left on my own. But when I'm in the will of God, being the man, the, the father, the husband I should be, I have power uh, with God because of my alignment with Him. So when Paul says she has power uh, on her head because of the angels, he's saying, look, when you uh, Hebrews is clear. You come into the church, which is the company of innumerable angels. We forget that the spirit world is just as real as the physical world. And so angels see is what he's saying. You can't fool them. It's like the seven sons of Sceva, uh, where they try to uh, cast out devils in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches. And the devil's like, Paul I know, Jesus I know, but who are you? And turns and uh, overcomes them, beats them, sends them out bruised and, and, and in a terrible shape. Why? Because they were posturing a position of alignment that they didn't actually have. And so when Paul says a woman has to be submitted to God to lead from this place of authority, uh, he's not saying that women can't ever exercise authority. That's why First Timothy says, usurp, take it unlawfully. As long as she's obeying God, she can work. And when she preaches or sings or teaches, God uses her in a powerfully spiritual way that goes beyond just her oratory or her singing. It touches the spirit work. But when she's not connected to him, it's just her oratory. She's on her own. She has no power on her head. Does that make sense? Yeah, because Hebrews says, are they not all ministering spirits to the heir, those that will inherit salvation? So because you are saved and you've inherited salvation, angels are ministering spirits to you. And we shouldn't pray for angels that come. We pray for the will of God and they act in concert with God's will and purpose. So our job is just to stay in alignment. And the spirit world war is, is not something we don't need to even command angels. We just obey God and it happens. Kevin? Yeah, it's a physical. Very See, uh, to say that the physical doesn't touch the spirituals, you, you can't do that. Jesus says, you, you know, uh, like she was talking about, the inside is what matters, but the inside always mad manifests. And so um, I can say I love my wife, but I better manifest some stuff. I better bring some flowers home occasionally and say I love you at least once a year or more. <laughs> You know, because if it doesn't manifest, then uh, on the outside or in actions, Paul said, or James says, you say you have faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. So our works demonstrate our spirituality, our faith is real. And it's that concrete expression. God chose the concrete expression. He could have said, yeah, all the guys have to have a purple mohawk. Uh, and it would just be something that we have to do. And the question is, if this is what the God who loved us enough to come and die for us once, then why in the world wouldn't I want to please Him? See, that's about the heart. You're right. It's about the heart issue. If my heart is, what can I get away with and, and kind of skate by and make it to heaven? I don't know that a person like that can actually do much for God or maybe even be saved. But someone saying is, I love Him, and whatever He wants, I want. Then they're very, very easily led to these things.
If you can show, now there's good questions. I think people should ask good questions because I don't think you should be led blind. Good. Do you have another question? This would be our last one if you do. Pick one. <laughs> Choose wisely. Hold on, John. Does anybody else have a question? I can talk to John after we're done. Does anybody else have a question or a comment that hasn't asked? I'll just give you one more addition. Uh, there are a lot of people that think because Paul says covering that it's about a cloth. And if you're dealing with someone, remember, it's not wrong for them to wear an extra covering as long as they maintain the biblical one, which would be uncut hair. Uh, even though I think it's further than what the Scripture prescribes. Because Paul says, uh, her hair is given to her, it's anti in the Greek, like antichrist, against Christ, or instead of Christ. And it really literally means her, her hair is given to her instead of, or in place of, any covering.